If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I am so excited for you to meet Melinda French-Gates, founder of Pivotal Ventures, a company working to accelerate the pace of social progress in the United States. Melinda launched Pivotal in 2015 and has since invested and donated hundreds of millions of dollars as part of a $1 billion commitment to promoting gender equality. Notable milestones include investing more than $65 million in comprehensive federal paid family leave and medical leave and launching a future of longevity accelerator to bring innovative solutions for elder care. Melinda is a renowned philanthropist, businesswoman, and global advocate for women and girls. As co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, she shapes and approves the foundation's strategies, reviews results, and sets the organization's overall direction. She works with grantees and partners to further the foundation's goals of improving equity in the United States and around the world. Melinda is also an author of the best-selling book, The Moment of Lift. She spent the first decade of her career developing multimedia products at Microsoft, and she earned a bachelor's degree in computer science and economics and an MBA, both from Duke University. And with that, the woman who needs no introduction, let's welcome Melinda. Hi, Melinda. Thrilled to have you here today. Melinda, first of all, I've been a fangirl for a long time, so I am so honored to have you on today and really to get to talk about your journey as a founder, because we know so much about certain parts of your life, but the founder journey I'm really excited about. So I want to just go back. Let's start with that big aha moment where you focused your career as an engineer in Microsoft to philanthropy. So year 2000, when you started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, what was that aha moment, that shift to saying, all right, let's go do incredible good in the world? Well, I had worked at Microsoft, as you said. I loved my career there, but I'd had a daughter at that point, and I knew that I wanted to step back from my career at Microsoft, but I also knew I had a lot of curiosity about the world, and I knew I wanted to do something else. We had already committed that we were going to give the bulk of the resources from Microsoft away, but really it was about what. What are we going to do? And as I started to realize that things that I had done in my previous life were applicable in philanthropy, I was like, oh, wait a minute, we should apply some of these skills. So I'll give you an example. There was a libraries program that we had been started and incubated at Microsoft, but they could only do one state because it just was going to cost so much to do all the states. But the idea was that we would wire every library in the United States to have computers so that anybody could have access to the internet because it was not prolific at that point. And when I saw what a profound difference that made in kids' lives, in adults' lives to go do their resume, I said, oh, I know something about this. I want to get more involved. Let's fast forward to 2015 when you launched Pivotal. Important question. First, what was the impetus to start yet another organization? And talk a little bit about Pivotal's core mission 
And what was driving you with that aha moment? Well, I'd been working in philanthropy at that point for 15 years, and it had really by then dawned on me the importance of having women at all seats of power and everywhere in the world, and yet we weren't even close to that. And I was really seeing it through the lens of my travels to the continent of Africa, to Southeast Asia. But I could just see that all of these countries looked to the United States back then as the highest income country in the world. And if we didn't have parity of women, let's say at Congress or in boardrooms, we weren't the exemplar at all. We had a lot of issues here. And so the foundation was well on its way already in its global health work. We were working deeply on the U.S. education system to try and lift all kids up. But I knew that working on women's issues in the United States really didn't fit neatly inside the foundation. And I thought, I'm just going to do this outside of the foundation. And quite frankly, it's also, you know, I was working with my co-founder, now my ex-husband, Bill Gates. We're still working together. But I also wanted to do something on my own. I just thought it'd be fun to do it on my own and build my own team. And so that's what I did. So you made a really important decision not to set it up as a charity pivotal. It's a company. Walk us through that logic and how you arrived at that outcome. Well, I wanted to be able to use every single tool in my toolbox. And so what I decided when I set up Pivotal Ventures, it's an LLC, is that I would absolutely do some philanthropic grant making through it, which I absolutely do. But I also want to invest in partnerships easily And I wanted to make investments. Like, So one of the areas I work on is women and people of color don't have easy access to venture capital by any means. And so I thought, I want to try and push that ecosystem along by example. And I want to use specific investments to do that and show that that's a way to do that and to create change. I want to talk a little bit about the women's issues that Pivotal is really focused on and how you've gone about sorting them deciding that they are worth your time and energy, and then how you've focused on setting up systems to go and actually materially improve some of those issues. And talk a little bit about how do you think about the issues and then how do you attack them? Well, I set up a small team to get started. And what we really wanted to look at were what were the biggest barriers that hold women back in the United States And what could be the greatest accelerants that if we got sort of the flywheel moving, you really would start to flip society. And so that was sort of the problem in front of us. And what we came to learn and realize is the two biggest barriers for women, it turns out not just in the U.S., but around the world are, number one, harassment and abuse. Uh, Women leave their jobs at three times the rate if they're harassed in the workforce, caregiving, just a gigantic problem in the United States. If a woman doesn't have a place to put her child, she can't go to work or do the create the business she wants. So we decided we would start to work on those two barriers. And particularly, we were going to start with childcare because it was so big. And caregiving, because it turns out women are also taking care of the elderly. So we are tackling those two abuses. And then we said, what industries have the greatest impact on society? Well, number one, politics, because that's who makes our laws. Yep. Number two, and these not in particular order, but number two, I would say finance, because that's where we move money. Number three, technology, because it is literally changing our lives and women are not at parity at all there. And fourth, I would say media, because that's who tells our stories and who helps shape societies. And we said to ourselves, okay, if those are kind of the four key industries, what actions would we and a set of partners take to really try and create change there? And if we could get that going and that momentum going, it could then absolutely flip society so women really truly got equality in the United States. 
Melinda, talk about some of the real standout moments where you said, goodness gracious, we actually accomplished that and this is moving X. Well, in the caregiving space, for instance, we really have been working on paid family medical leave. And we looked at the states that had some of the best policies. So when we came into the space, there were a handful of states that had paid family medical leave, some of them at a more robust level, some a little bit less. Our goal, quite frankly, was to get it at the federal level for everybody. And we worked diligently on that. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. We worked at the state level. So the states have now gone from a handful of states that have paid family medical leave to 13 states as of this week. Maine and Minnesota just added them. And they have very good policies. We also now, there is paid family medical leave for the U.S. military and for federal workers. So we are absolutely pushing that system along with our great ecosystem of partners. We've also gotten onto the agenda more robustly caregiving for the elderly because families are facing that. And one of the things I'm doing is I've created a Techstars program where we're actually putting money into innovators working on what are solutions, innovative solutions for this end of lifetime where people are wanting to age in place. So we're tackling that from both ends of the spectrum. And I'm really proud of the work we've done just, for instance, in that space of caregiving. When you think about some of the skill sets and some of the lessons you brought from your time at Microsoft, where you you were managing almost 2,000 employees at one point, you had a huge job, huge career. Talk a little bit about what you brought from your corporate world to Pivotal to try to move these boulders quickly. Well, I think I learned through managing at Microsoft, and it wasn't right away. It was after I was there a couple of years. I realized that authentic leadership actually matters. It matters in huge ways. When you can Amen. when you can live your values out in your work, what happens is you attract other like-minded people, talented people. So once I started doing that in the corporate world and realizing that I could be myself and it could work, I said, I want to do that in every aspect of my life. I learned that, you know, hiring talented people and retaining them, it's easier to retain them if they're living their values through the work. I believe in trusting people and trusting teams. I set strategy with them. We collaborate. I know I don't have all the good ideas. I know sometimes I don't even have the ideas, but I believe in trusting my teams and setting good strategy and then having check-ins. So those are a few of the things. The last thing I would say is just curiosity. Like to come into a space and say, okay, what has been done? Because there's a lot of good work that's happened in caregiving, but is there like some curiosity of like what else could be done? And if we got the partners to work in a slightly different way, or we help set up more data, data doesn't exist in some of these areas. Can we bring more data to bear? Can we set up the research institute that could do it? Having curiosity about a space and then listening to what has worked and then maybe what we could do that would work, always in partnership with somebody. I think those are just traits we bring that have really helped our work. Also, those are really good things to to building big, durable businesses, right? For sure. You've spoken before about how critical it is that we get more women into technology, especially with the risks of building bias into AI. Talk a little bit about that problem, why you care about it, and what you see, what makes that such a big problem. Help us understand how much you think about it. Well, I think about this a lot because at the time I graduated in computer science, that was in the late 1980s, about 35% of the graduates in computer science were women. And we literally thought it was like medicine and law, that we were on our way up. Like, you know, oh, by now we'd at least have 50% women, which medicine and law do in terms of graduate. No, it fell way back. And 
slowly but steadily, we've been trying to climb that number back up. We're now at about 32% of college graduates in computer science are women. Well, we're already starting at a deficit of computer science graduates. And then in this more elite field called artificial intelligence, women are even further behind than men. Why is that? There's there's several factors you can go back and look at, but it was the gamifying of the computer science industry initially and what was created. But then it became a pretty hostile work environment for women. Women will tell you it's very hard to work in tech. So then consequently, what happens is you create products that don't represent everybody. Their bias is accidentally baked in because just to use a, a generalization, it might be a 20 or 30-year-old white guy making it, but he doesn't have a black grandfather or he ha- doesn't have the lived experience of trying to raise two or three children and get something done. And so until we have tables and decision-making bodies where women and people of color are sitting there in the creation process, you are inherently going to bite bias in. It's like the U.S. Constitution. Women weren't weren't anywhere in the room, and guess what? They didn't count for votes, and Black people weren't in the room, and they didn't count for votes. Look how long it's taken us to overcome that. And you could argue we're still trying to overcome it. So that's what I want to see does not happen in society. And these are fabulous jobs. They're well-paying jobs. They're exciting jobs. To be in the tech sector, I had a blast doing that for nine years, right? And so, you know, it should be a place that women are welcomed in, want to go to work, and are creating the products that will benefit all of us in the future. Melinda, when you think about your goals and what you want to accomplish with Pivotal Ventures over the next five years, 20 years, give us a sense of kind of what you see ahead of us and what you think is possible. Tell us a little bit about what you think is going to be possible with your work. When women are in places that decisions are made, just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, you know, when women are in all places that decisions are made, society will absolutely change. It will change fundamentally. And so I want to make sure we have a place where decisions are made by women, not for women. And when that happens, when we get to that point in these key places, politics, finance, tech, media, what you will see is the stories we tell were changed. They'll be more representative of society. Our Congress will represent democracy better. We won't roll back women's rights that we've had on the books for almost 50 years. So these rollbacks that we're seeing happen are not actually what the whole populace wants. It's what a small segment wants that are sitting in Congress or sitting in these halls of power. I mean, to have so many Black women in the United States and to not have a single Black senator, how can that be? How can, how that, can be? that be? Like in this day and age. And so what I know is if we get this work right with our partners and we create this momentum in these flywheels, these will reinforce one another. When more women have money in their hands and are spending it, when they feel like they can capitalize not only their business, but other women's and men's businesses and people of color, you're going to start to get different products than we see now. I mean, take women's health just as one example. All the bias that was baked in when there weren't more female doctors, we weren't even researching drugs based on a woman's body. We just assumed the drug, because it worked for a man, okay, cut it in half, it'll work for a woman, or cut it for her, you know, the number of pounds she weighs. No, our bodies actually work differently. 
And so now that there are more female doctors, now that there are more female researchers, finally more money is going into female health and research, we're learning all kinds of things. And to me, that's just exciting. And that's how it should be. Tell us a little bit more. You're focused on this right now in this particular environment. How do we make that better? How does everyone listening help your mission and cause of trying to get better equality? But how do we fix the politics piece? First of all, I have to say to ourselves, why is this so important? Well, this is who makes our laws of the land, right? At both the national level and the state level. And so those laws and policies, they affect all of us in good ways and in not good ways. So I think we have to say to ourselves, okay, well, how do we help women get to the highest seats of power? Well, it starts by making sure women know they're qualified, they can run, their campaigns are financed. You know, there's 7,000 seats at the state level. And that's a great place as a training ground also if a woman wants to go on and be at the national level. And we're seeing a lot of women make that jump. So what can you do? For instance, there's a fantastic organization called Vote Run Lead. You can send them $100. You can send them $1,000. They are helping train women on what it takes to run, what it takes to campaign and finance a campaign and deal with some of the harassment that comes up. And once they're in office, they network them in the state house or they help network them at the national level so that they, once they're there, they actually know what to do and are making good policy quickly. That's something we can all do. Can we talk a little bit more about any predictions that you have? Is there anything from your perch that you see that you're excited about or anything, any progress that you see that we should all know about? but any predictions that you can make? Well, I think we're all seeing the amazing benefits we get of having that smartphone in our hand, right? There are just some things you can do today you couldn't do before. And when I travel around the globe, my gosh, the difference it's making for women when they have a phone, it doesn't even have to be a smartphone, it can be an old plastic phone. When she has a bank account and has her own account and money in her hands, oh my God, it's transformative for her. And it literally, when we think of female empowerment or power, she will tell you, if it's in India, my mother-in-law looks at me differently because I have money. My son looks at me differently because I'm putting him through school. My husband looks at me differently. I look at myself differently. So money is power. <laughs> we know that, but that phone gives us a chance with women around the world to reach them when we couldn't reach them before. So I don't think most people see that. But wow, is it palpable when I travel now compared to a decade ago or even seven years ago in India, for instance. So I think that's one thing everybody should know. And I think on the downside, you know, we do need to say, like, we are seeing some of the negative impacts of social media on our girls, for instance, mental health. It has some upsides, too, for smaller groups like LGBTQ, we're learning, but we're also seeing the polarization of society because of it. And so I think we have to be wide-eyed that even some of this artificial intelligence pieces that are coming, I think they're going to have overall profoundly helpful changes in society, starting with health to many other things. But I do think we are going to go through a period that's difficult. And, you know, after the printing press, a lot of not good things happened in countries, you know, in Europe with wars. So I think we're going to see some of this downturn for a while before we climb out of it. And so I think all the more us really thinking about the values and the ethics of AI and who should be at the table and talking about that, it will protect against the downsides. 
And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to transition a little bit more just to you. Let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Dallas. Was there something that really stands out from your childhood that in the rearview mirror really helped shape that value system and who you are today? Well, I was just incredibly lucky. Like I have two parents, Ray and Elaine. They're still alive. I'm still very close to them. There were four children in our family. So I have an older sister than me. And then I had two younger brothers. And my parents really believed in values. And they inculcated those in the household. And they they had high expectations of us, right? And if they saw us be mean to somebody or, you know, the one time I ever stole something, I felt like I had to come and tell them immediately. Like they lived those values, Right. And they believed in setting goals that they could improve our lives by setting certain goals. They believed we could improve ourselves by setting goals. And they were 100% focused that all four children would be college going because my dad was first generation to go to college. And he said, look, this is the way in society that you will become whoever you want to become. And so he and my mom were deeply focused on their four kids going to college And we could look around as a family and see that wouldn't be easy on my dad's engineering salary. And so they set up a small business that we all participated in, a real estate investment business. And, you know, we did a lot of work together as a family. We mowed lawns, we cleaned ovens. They were their rental properties, but that's what put us through college. My parents' values and goals were clear to us as kids, and they expected us to be part of that. Is there anything in addition you would say that they did that you absolutely copied with your own children? My parents believed in hard work and we were all working hard. And so that showed up differently in my family life with my three children. But my three children saw that their dad and their mom worked hard. Like I was both a mom. I always wanted to be a mom and a career woman. And that had some tugs even for me in terms of what I could go to with them and the carpooling. But they saw me live the values out that my parents both had. My mom also worked on the real estate business and was home for four kids somehow. (laughs) And so I tried to live both of those values out. My parents taught us to use our voice in the world. We were church going, but my parents didn't believe everything the church was doing. And so they advocated for certain things. I taught my kids. I realized in my philanthropy, I had to use my voice and what I was telling them about use their voice in the world. I had to live that out. And the other thing I'll just say is, look, my kids did have some chores and they did have an allowance and they didn't get everything they wanted. Like when I grew up as a child, you know, I had to save money for things I wanted and I could maybe get it for Christmas or my birthday. My kids had a lot of the same, you know, they worked for the money they had. They had an allowance. They did chores. And believe me, they had to wait for Christmas or birthday and hope maybe we or their grandparents gave them that thing they just couldn't live without, you know, in the moment. When you were 14, you started studying computer science in school. For everybody out there listening that either is still in the school going years or have children that they can unlock, what did that unlock for you? 
studying computer science. Oh my gosh. It unlocked confidence because in computer science, you're solving problems. You're figuring things out. In a weird way, you're kind of tinkering. And so you have to be curious. And I think one of the things that people, and especially women, underestimate, because it's all been so focused for so long on young men coding, is coding is actually incredibly creative. You're creating things. And women are attracted to it when it's creating something for real-world problems. But for me, I just learned it gave me my confidence that I could stick to something and work on something hard. And when assignment was given to us, and I think, I have no idea how to begin this assignment. I have no idea where to start. I would somehow, by the time it was due, have figured it out. And so I think that just gave me a lot of confidence and ended up loving the creative aspects of it because I do have a creative side of my brain. Fast forward a little bit, you're in high school. You said that your drill team taught you how to be a good leader and that you could be a good leader. What did you learn? I, I often say to people, and then I'll give you the concrete specifics, that if you can get 55 young women who are roughly the age of 15, 16, or 17 onto a bus on a football game night for an away game, get them on the bus on time with all their equipment, all their gloves of different colors, and the fact that, you know, they've broken up with their boyfriend and they're sad or they, they didn't think about the fact they were having their period that night and they didn't bring a tampon. Like, if you can deal with all of the emotion of that and get them organized enough to get on the bus and then get out on the field and do the routine that they and you have helped create, you can do almost freaking anything. <laughs> And what I learned was I learned to delegate. I had a little management structure under me of six young women, and they helped with things. I learned how to manage down, and I had to discipline people who were even my friends, but we had a system for that. So I learned to systematize things, systematize how we got our uniforms. I learned how to open a bank account and manage money. I also, though, learned to manage up because the woman they assigned to us from the school you could just say that management was not her skill. <laughs> and so I had to manage up and almost through her to get the resources I needed from the school. But I had to do it delicately. She was our, you know, senior leader. She was an adult. So I learned a lot about management from that experience. You were at Microsoft and you said you almost quit two years in because of just the challenging work culture. What did you learn through that? Well, I almost quit because it felt very just brash. It was kind of the boys' debate club, and I could play that game. Believe me, I knew how to play that game. And I was moving up. I was starting to manage people, but I didn't like myself. And that became the fundamental issue as I was like, mm, I could just tell the way I was acting outside of work. And so I thought, you know, I'll just, before I quit or leave, I'll just try being myself. And I was certain I was going to fail. <laughs> certain. And I thought, well, I know I can get another job, so that'll be okay. As my dad kept saying to me, there aren't many female computer scientists, so okay. It turned out by being my authentic self, I ended up being more successful. And what I found was I could attract men and women, but really men. It was men who were developers and the testers back then. I could attract males of all types to my teams because they wanted to work in a culture where they could be themselves, they could show up as their best selves, they knew I had their back in tough meetings, but they also knew I trusted them, like I checked in on them. But once the team set a direction and a schedule and we hashed out what was going to happen, I trusted them. And so I learned that, my gosh, culture matters. And again, talk about retaining people. I could both attract from around the company 
top, top talent, and I could retain them because they felt good for some reason about working in this subculture inside the company. You just touched on something that I'm so happy you brought up, which is that you had a moment where you didn't like who you were becoming. For people who are out there right now and don't like who they're becoming in a certain environment or something's not working, what advice do you have for them? Tell us more. You have to be who you want to be. And so if you're in a culture where you can't show up as your best self or your most authentic self or feel like you can be, if you're innovative, I want to be really innovative or creative, I think you have to remember that every single day adds up to a year. And those years add up much more quickly than you think. And so you don't want to look back 10 years from now and say, my gosh, I didn't like myself then, but I didn't make a change. And now look at who I've become. And so, I don't know, I've always, in a funny way, lived my life backwards. Like, what is it I will want people to say about me on the last day of my life? And once you figure that out, you just work back from it. And you say, okay, well, then I better start now and start working towards that. And so that means surrounding yourself, though, with people who will give you feedback or being honest with yourself when you're not showing up as your best self. It might be you. It might not even be the culture, right? What is it that's going on with you? And so I think we all need to take a critical look at ourselves. But, you know, every hour adds up to a full day and every day adds up to a full year and every year adds up to a decade. So it's so important to be working with the people that you feel like you can be your best self and that you're supporting them in that work too. I love that. And that can be men or women. I've worked on amazing male teams. To this day, I work with amazing males who I adore and love. And I work with amazing transgender people and amazing females, right? People come in all different ways and from places around the world. But you create and find teams of people that you want to support and who will support you. One thing you've said that I absolutely am obsessed with, you said, if I didn't fill my schedule with the things that I felt were important, other people would fill my schedule with the things that they felt were important. Can you just give us a little bit of any tip or trick or something you have adopted that helps you take those systems and stay organized to accomplish the things that you really want to set out to accomplish? Well, I learned in seventh grade from a course that my parents sent us kids to how to set goals. And so again, These days, I certainly don't set a goal for every day anymore or even every month, but it's more that I know what I want to accomplish with Pivotal Ventures, right? I know what I want to accomplish with the foundation and where I want to go and drive towards. And so then I just break it down and say, okay, if I look back on a day, are the things that were on my calendar happening because really only I could do them with the teams that I've structured? And if not, That's aside from the personal stuff that gives me massive joy. Like I surround myself with family and friends and every opportunity I can because it fills my joy bucket and that gives me the energy for my work. But on my work, it's, okay, when I look back at the end of the day, what are the things that maybe I did that, you know, somebody else could have done it? Like it doesn't take my unique skills or my unique learnings from around the world. And so I really try to assess my calendar that way, forward thinking now, like, oh, well, take that meeting because really... If not for you, it won't happen or somebody else won't do it. Or maybe that person won't sign up to help with that thing or that partner can't be moved forward. But anything else that can be done by someone else, I try to set up and find the best person to work on it or the best team. So one of my business coaches or a business coach I've had for a while says, but for, 
Like what's on your calendar that but for you, no one else could do it. And that's really how I try to orient my day. And I also have people who remind me of that too, because I can slip out of it, right? And do things that, oh, that's just fun to do. You know, I do like to do things that are fun. Also, I put fun in my day as well, even on business stuff. I love that. Okay. Now we're going to come to the optimist part because I really just, you are a natural optimist. Mm. It is in you. I mean, it's so clear, even just from feeling your presence here. Talk a little bit about, you said this great thing, which is you believe in human beings. You believe in human ingenuity. You believe in humanity. Tell us why. You know, I've been so lucky with the foundation to travel the globe and I meet people in some of the most remote places and, you know, somewhere in Africa and what they're doing with their human ingenuity to eke out in life, to get their kids in school, to figure out the latest thing that they can learn or the latest crop they can grow so that they have more production on their farm. Like, I just see it. I see it all over the world. I see it in the United States by things that are being created. I see it in a tech hub in Nairobi, these young people and the technologies they're creating that'll benefit people all over the continent and all over the world. And so I do know, like when you look at humanity over time, that in general, the world has gotten better for people. Like we are not still living the way we did 150 years ago, for the most part. And so the only thing that changes that is humans, but it's humans coming together in collectives. No one person ever does it alone. And that is one of the things I really try and live out in my work is realize that it takes a multitude of partners and ideas, but it's human beings that are changing the world. And I believe in other people. I'm going to transition to a quick fire round. Okay. I'm just going to ask you, and I want the first thing that comes to your mind, what is an interview question that you like to ask people to get a sense of who they are? What's the hardest thing you've had to grapple with and how'd you get through it? What is a quote or a mantra or something that you really live by? Well, I spoke this actually at my high school graduation. It's from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is to have succeeded. What do you think is your biggest pinch me moment to date? Probably receiving the Medal of Freedom at the White House from President Obama for the work that we had done with the foundation. I was like, wow, just not something I ever even thought of or dreamt of. And when we got the call that that was going to be awarded, that was a pinch me moment. And it was wonderful because I had my parents and siblings there and kids. It was wonderful. What is a book that has impacted your life? It can be any type of book, but a book that has materially impacted you. Uh, The Book of Awakening. It's by Mark Nepo. I call him a spiritual poet. It's on my nightstand. And when I travel, it goes in my tote bag that I throw it in at the last minute because I just, he has a quote and a reading for every day. And I don't even go by his days. I just literally open it to where it turns that, that page that day. And it just is a time for me of quiet and reflection. And I really feel like, again, in terms of living my values, it's by touching a bit of my spirituality in the morning. And that book helps me do that. What is the category of innovation that you're excited by? Anything tech-related. Especially when I think of technology applied to people's lives. Like I meet with these healthcare workers, again, in remote parts of India, but they are helping Women change their lives. And what I know, you know, when they get technology in their hands, they learn more to be able to help the women. 
They know which houses they should go to first, second, third in the day based on which women, where she is in pregnancy. I think of what's coming with AI and how it's going to help those frontline health workers. Wow, it's going to make a difference in women's health. What are you most excited about over the next decade for Pivotal? I am the most excited about progress. Like, I'm going to measure the next decade by, do we have more women in the halls of Congress? Do we have more female stories out there? Do we have more women? Like, I'm literally, every year, we're following and we're pushing on all what we think are the key things. Of Do we have more women in tech? Those are things that I'm just really excited to see come to fruition so that the world I leave behind, not just to my daughters, but I have a granddaughter now. She just turned six months that the world that left behind to her and some of the work done by Pivotal and our partners really made it different for her. And my last question for you is, what is one thing you hold as sacred? To whom much is given, much is expected. Look, I am where I am in society because I was lucky enough to be born into a family that didn't have as many barriers against them compared to other people who grew up in the United States. And Because of that, I was able to get a good education and go on to do other things. And so just that education or people who've been in my life, I owe something back to society. And so lifting up others, to me, that is giving back. Yes, I'm absolutely giving back money. I'm going to give back a lot of money, and I am. But I want to do it in a way where it lifts up others. And I will say to almost anybody born in the United States, if you're lucky enough to be born in our country, even if your circumstances are not good, it's better than other places in the world that you're born. So even if you give back a dollar or $9.99 for malaria bed net, it makes a difference in a child or pregnant woman's life in a huge way. So we all have something to give. And sometimes it's our time, sometimes it's our voice, and sometimes it's our money. But To make the world a better place while we're here is something I believe everybody should do. Wow. Melinda, first of all, so fun to feel the optimism and energy that just is coming out of you and the focus and the motivation and the commitment. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, I want you to check out pivotalventures.org. And I think what we should take away from all of this is that we all can do just something big or small to give back. So let's all do that for Melinda. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Melinda, we are all rooting for you. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for doing this, Alexa. So enjoyed it.